Our text this week out of the book of Malachi, chapter 3, My Messenger. Starting in verse, well, actually, before we get into chapter 3, I want to cover the last verse in chapter 2, because I think this would be a better division break of chapters. Of course, Malachi is not the one who did that division break. That came hundreds, if not over a thousand years later. So chapter 2, verse 17, chapter 2 ends with this verse, and it says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, In what way have we wearied him? In that you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Now this is again a kind of theme that we've seen in this book of Malachi, the way he writes, the style that he writes, which is again another testimony that the Bible is authentic, that God inspired, as the Bible tells us, God inspired people to write the words. He didn't dictate and give the words because everyone had their own little way of writing things and saying things. And this is a phrase that we see in Malachi where throughout the chapter 1, he, he starts with that God loves us, but we haven't been showing love back. And so here's another way. You're wearying me, says the Lord. And then they responded back. And so this back and forth conversation. And so he starts this another new conversation with the Lord and the people. And so that's why another, one of the reasons I feel it fits better with going into chapter 3. Um, and, uh, and chapter 3 end, or the chapter 2 ended last week. We looked at where he said he hates divorce and the verses before that had to do with marriage and divorce, and so that kind of fit together. And then this totally new topic seems better to flow into chapter 3. And so in this chapter, we're going to see uh, a wonderful prophecy, amazing prophecy, another testimony of the validity of the Bible, uh, where another prophet, Malachi here, gives a prophecy, and we have the opportunity to see the fulfillment of it. And as we see the fulfillment of these Bible prophecies, it strengthens our trust in his promises as well. So if he was right on the promise, pro prophecies, then he's right on the promises as well, even though we can't always see all the promises, like that you're forgiven. You can't necessarily see that, but we can experience it. Or the promise of heaven, that we're saved, that we have uh, heaven waiting us. We can't see that, but we can know that's assured because God was truthful in the prophecies, so thus he's truthful in the promises. And we'll see a wonderful promise being fulfilled in this chapter. So, but here in this verse, he's saying, you wearied me, and we say, how are we wearying you? We don't even have any idea. What are we doing wrong? <laughs> and again, we see that, we'll see that even more in Malachi as we continue on in other chapters. But where, where, what have we done that wearied you? What have we done wrong? And he says, you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And, and God delights in them. Well, that's very apropos to our day today. Where... Not only calling evil good, but calling evil good and that God approves of the good. That God also thinks that this evil is good. And that is, is, is so crazy. I mean, we even have it in slang sayings, right? Oh, oh and someone says, oh, he's so bad. They're, they're saying that in a good way. <laughs> oh, he's bad. I'm bad, you know. Uh, there's even uh, companies that are named bad boys or various different things or, uh, you know. That that's hip, that that's good, that that's, I should buy that brand uh, with a title like that, with a name like that. But then when you add that religious component to it, that, uh, that God says it's good, it's in the sight of the Lord that it's good, it's really blasphemy, where God calls things evil. And then God changes his mind and now says that's good? 
where you have people of the Bible preaching the Bible, supposedly preaching the Bible, and saying that now the pigs are okay, pigs all of a sudden became clean, the pigs all, all of a sudden became righteous, pigs all of a sudden became uh, saved, and that they're now okay to eat, where they weren't okay to eat for 4,000 years, and now all of a sudden they're okay to eat? And God was wrong, he didn't know what he was doing when he told Moses to have us eat it? And so now it's good? How can it be good when God said it was not good? And it's okay now to eat blood when we weren't able to eat blood before, when God said it's, it, we shouldn't be eating blood before. And we're calling things good that one time God said were evil. God said it was evil? It's still evil. It's still not helpful for us. It's still not good for our bodies. The pig hasn't changed. It still has uh, worms and trichinosis and, 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 and cholesterol and, and eats garbage and lives in the mud and doesn't sweat and all other kinds of problems with it. And same with the bats and rats and cats and dogs and all the other things that God told us not to eat. Uh, that still, still applies. It's not longer good because Yeshua died for our sins. Uh, pig's still a pig. <laughs> and, uh, and that does not change. And so they call that, oh, was, what was one time, the Bible said it was evil? Now saying it's good and God approves it and he delights in it. We'll even make it a main fair for a religious holiday. And there's other ways, even more modern ways that we're Calling evil good, and there are many we can look at, but a really open, blatant one is, uh, is sexual preferences, sexual lifestyle, sexual choices. Everything from pornography in society today, even uh, companies like uh, major news outlets or media outlets saying, uh, you know, how much uh, children pornography would be helpful or, or healthy? None. <laughs> None. Why do you even ask that question? What are they even thinking? Where are they even going with this? Right? It's evil. It's evil. And then it's acceptable and it's become commonplace for uh, sexual relationships outside of marriage, even in religious circles, or ministers who commit adultery and then remain in the pulpit. And it's good. God delights in it. God's okay with it. He's not okay with it. He never was okay with it, and he's not okay with it today either. Or homosexuality, which the Bible very clearly says is sin. He's not okay with that, but we're saying, oh, now it's okay, now it's good. God delights in that. Even homosexual ministers, and homosexual congregations, reading the Bible. That was evil and calling it good in the sight of the Lord, and that he delights in them. Another ridiculous part of that is someday I can get arrested and, and put in jail for saying what the Bible says. God loves, he loves everyone. That's part of the problem here. We've mixed up what true love really is. God loves everyone. God loves the world. He gave his only begotten son. Yeshua is the savior of all mankind. But it doesn't mean everyone's going to be saved. It doesn't mean he approves of everything we do. We have this misconception of love, of what real love is. Love is not just this wishy-washy feeling, as we talked about last week when we talked about marriage. Love is a choice. And God has made a choice to love us. 
He chooses to love us. Not because we're beneficial to him. Not because he needs our love. Not because there's anything loving in us. Not because we're beautiful or, or helpful or, or desirous, desirable. But he chooses to love us because he created us. He's the creator of all mankind. But again, that doesn't mean that everyone's going to be in heaven. He created Lucifer, but he kicked him out of heaven. I believe he still loves Lucifer. I believe he loves the devil. I believe he loves Satan. But he's not going to let him back into heaven. We have such a mixed up conception of love that we think, well, since God loves everyone, then he must love my actions. That he loved me the way I am. I've got this desire, and so it's okay. I, I was created this way, so they say, and so, and they might have been, might have been born with those evil desires. We're all born with evil desires. Every desire we have, even all our righteousness, is filthy rags. So whether it's a desire to eat a pig or a desire to have sex with a, a, someone of the same uh, biological sex or, or whether to look at pornography or, or be proud or be selfish, it's all sinful thoughts. And they're all natural. It's natural to be selfish. It doesn't make it good, and God does not approve of it just because it's natural to be selfish. Or to be proud, or, or any, or fearful. All these are natural feelings, but they're not good. God has not given us a spirit of fear, and yet we're all born with a tendency to be fearful. But God has not given us a spirit of fear that came from the devil. And we're born with that through Adam and Eve surrendering to him. God has given us love. God has given us power. God has given us a sound mind. So whether we are born with natural tendencies to evil does not make them good or acceptable with God. That's the whole purpose of the gospel, that God can change us. That God can forgive us for our sins that he can remove the sinful desires from us and give us holy right desires. That's the power of the Lord, that we don't longer have to be fearful. We no longer have to be selfish. We no longer have to be proud. We no longer have to have evil uh, taste buds and desires. That God can give us victory. A person has uh, desires to, to rape every woman he sees or or, or, or child pornography, does that make it good because they have these natural desires? No, it's not good. It's not good. And the power of the gospel is to change us from our evil state, from our carnal state, through the power and blood of the Messiah. That's what he died for. That's what he came for. Again, not to cleanse the, the pig or to make our sinfulness acceptable, but he came to take our sins Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You shall call his name Yeshua, for he shall save his people from their sins. He takes our desire to sin away and delivers us from those sinful inclinations. Gives us new minds, new hearts, gives us the very mind of Yeshua. Let this mind be in you. He'll write his laws in our hearts and in our minds, giving us new thoughts, new desires. That's why heart and mind. And the power to change. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's why he came. 
not to make sinful now good, not to do away with the law. If he could do away with the law, he wouldn't have had to die. The fact that Yeshua died verifies the law, strengthens the power of the law, that the law had to be paid. The crime had to be paid, the sin had to be paid, and thus he paid the price for us. Which doesn't negate the law, doesn't do away with the law, but it forgives us for past mistakes, and then he gives us his Holy Spirit. He pours out his Holy Spirit into us to give us the ability to not continue in those sins. And so he releases us and delivers us. But the world is so mixed up, even within, again, Bible-believing circles. And now it's okay to do sin. And now it's okay to do wrong. That evil is now good and God delights in it. No, he does not. And we're wearying him by saying so. Very accurate description of today. And then he continues on with the flip side and says, or, so either they're either wearying him with one or two ways, either by saying evil is good, or where is the God of justice? So on the one hand, you have these people who are playing religion, having a form of godliness, be denying the power thereof, saying God delights in sin. So they're professing, but they're not following and not living it. It's on the one hand saying that evil is good, but then on the other hand, you have people who are truly following God and they're saying, where's the God of justice? <laughs> How long are we going to continue with this? How long are we going to continue in a sinful state? How long are we going to allow evil to continue? How long are we going to allow our voices to be silenced? God, how long are you going to continue to allow evil to prosper? How long are you going to let them get away with these falsehoods? How long are you going to allow them to get away with themselves, deceiving themselves and deceiving others? How long are you going to allow the corruption that is taking place in this earth to continue? And they're crying out for justice. Where is the God of justice? And so God's rebuking them, saying, we're wearying me by questioning. So on the one hand, they don't have faith. Where is the God of justice? How long, O oh Lord? How long? On the other hand, wearing him by ignoring his word. Either way, is not good. And so, the, if you have the chapter breaks, the chapter 2 ending here, it ends with this question and leaves you hanging with no answer. Where is the God of justice? What's he going to do about this, that evil is good, that we just wearied him? But if we continue on to chapter 3, it gives us the answer to those questions. This evil, calling evil good, and where is the God of justice? So chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Don't worry, justice will be played out. Just wait a little longer. <laughs> my messenger will come, the Messiah will come, and a messenger will come before him and prepare the way for him. Prepare the way for me, God's saying. He's saying, I'm going to come, and don't worry, but a messenger is going to come before me and prepare the way for me. Hang on. Have faith. Don't give up. And so we have a wonderful prophecy here. That a messenger would come before the Lord appears. Now it's interesting, he uses this term messenger. My messenger in, in this sentence. And that, that word is 
Malachi. It's actually basically the same spelling of the name of the author of this book. We pronounce it Malachi in English, but it'd really be Malachi. And it translates my messenger. And so whether he was referring to himself, that's maybe his name, maybe his parents gave him that name, my messenger. I mean, we have lots of names in the Bible, kind of phrases like that. Using a biblical connotation, God my judge, right? Daniel, these type of things. Uh, or he could have been just referring to himself as God's messenger. Either way. But the interesting thing with that term, Melech or Melechi, again, various different ways with prefixes and suffixes changing a little bit. It's used in the Bible about 200 times. The root of it is used about 200 times in the Bible. About 100 times it's translated as messenger or messengers, various different forms. And about 100 different times, give or take, it's translated as angel or angels. Same exact word. Same exact word. Yeah, same exact word. So there's sometimes confusion, like we have angel of the Lord, and sometimes that angel of the Lord was the Lord himself. In some appearances, it was very obviously when he appeared before Joshua, and Joshua bows down before him. And this angel of the Lord accepts Joshua's bowing down before him, where in Revelation, a regular angel doesn't accept John bowing down before him. And so obviously that was the Lord, referred to as the angel of the Lord, but really could have been translated as the messenger of the Lord. And so sometimes people, when people see this angel of the Lord, well, then they think angel. And there are times where angel of the Lord is not the Lord God. It is just an angel who came as an angel messenger of the Lord. And so you have to read it in context and, and be able to discern it that way. And so the, the translators, sometimes they translate it as messenger, or messengers, or sometimes as angel, angels. And, and so the problem is, is when people look at it, it, sometimes they either then confuse some of these references of angel of the Lord, that the, that the Messiah is, is not divine, that he was just a lower form, like an angel. Or on the other hand, then they will reject that and say, that wasn't the Lord in that case, uh, because it says angel. Well, it didn't say angel. It could be, again, it's just the word that could be angel or messenger. Either way. And so we have to read it in context and look at the rest of the Bible text of what it says about the Messiah and his divinity, and yet he came as the messenger. Now here is a messenger coming before him, but still the same phrase there for messenger. And here, obviously, lowercase, the translators make it a lowercase. They're not referring to the Messiah here as this messenger. I send my messenger who will prepare the way before me, and they capitalized me, referring to God coming to this earth, but a messenger coming first. So we see some of the fulfillment of this prophecy in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. John the Immerser came preaching in the wilderness of Judah, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight, Jerusalem, all Judah, Judea, and all the regions round about the Jordan went out to him and were immersed by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. And so here Matthew, referring to John the Immerser, says that he is preparing the way before the Lord. Now he's quoting from Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah chapter 40, 
But it's interesting, in Isaiah chapter 40, it has this phrase, prepare the way. Let's go back a slide. So in this Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, it has this phrase, prepare the way and before me. And so here in Matthew, he's quoting a very similar phrase, same phrase, prepare the way, very similar prophecy, and applying it to John. So this phrase is in Malachi, and it's in Isaiah, and now here it's in Matthew, applying to John, preparing the way before the Messiah. Now, how did John prepare the way for the Messiah? By saying, a God of love is coming, and he's going to spread love on the earth, and there will be peace and harmony, and we all just need to love one another, kumbaya, hold, hold hands, and let us sing a song together. Is that what he said? No, repent! <laughs> he came, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And how did the people receive it? They came to the Jordan and confessed their sins. He didn't come and say, oh, God's coming and he's going to change everything. We're, not going to, we're going to be able to eat pig. Get ready. Start having pig farms because the Messiah is coming. Is that what he started saying? You're going to have multiple wives. It doesn't matter. It won't matter anymore. Evil will be good. He's coming. He's coming. Is that how he prepared the way? No, he prepared the way by calling evil, evil. He came preparing the way by calling sin by its right name and not leading people in acceptance of sin, but to turn from the sins, to confess the sins, to turn them over to the Lord, be immersed, in other words, symbolically, dying to self, dying to the old nature, dying to the nature that had those corrupt, carnal, perverse des desires and feelings and actions, and then coming up out of the water with a new life. New heart, new mind, new thoughts, new actions. That's what he repent, that's what he preached, and that's what he did. And symbolically of the of the emergence and preparing the way for the Messiah. And before the Messiah comes again another time, he needs another uh, says that he would come in the spirit of Elijah. And also Elijah also called sin by its right name calling out King Ahab, calling out Jezebel. And not only John, John was bold enough to do it in such a way that he got beheaded for doing so. He got censored. He got silenced. His voice got cut off. His head got cut off. Because he spoke the truth. And so similar to these last days, those speaking the truth will... There will be attempts to silence them. Whether God allows it or not, that's up to him. There certainly will be evil attempts to silence God's messengers going forth, preparing the way before the Lord so that the Lord can come again. So there needs to be a preparation before the Lord comes again. And it's the same message, a message of repentance, a message of turning from sin. And John's wasn't very popular, although people came from Jerusalem and Judea and all around to hear and be immersed. But there were many who were not favorable about it. The elites and the religious leaders, the government, not happy about it. Not in favor of it. Well, there were some of religious leaders and some Roman soldiers and people who went out to hear until we'll have this division taking place again. And so that's the type of preparation God's calling us to do. Not waiting for some individual, but for all of us 
to be filled with the same spirit that was upon Elijah, the same spirit that was on John, in double portion measure, to go forth and prepare the way by calling sin, sin, and leading people away. Loving them, God loves. And it's in love, and it's because he loves. The Bible more than once says, talking God, speaking himself, those whom I love, I rebuke and chastise. He corrects us in love. True love corrects. True love does not allow a friend to drive drunk, right? True love does not allow someone to drive, jump off a cliff. True love says, no, that is wrong. True love corrects wrong. Doesn't allow wrong, doesn't allow a person to go into destruction, to destroy themselves and to destroy others. But today's society, we don't, we don't like that. We don't want to offend. We're being told, don't offend. If you say that, it might offend somebody. So you can't say that anymore. They're becoming neutered. Not being able to speak truth. For fear of reprisal, fear of hurting someone's feelings. John wasn't afraid of hurting someone's feelings. If it would help them out. He was trying to help Herod. You can't marry your brother's sister. I mean, your brother's wife. He called it out. And sometimes that will lead people to repentance for their benefit, for their good. But sometimes in John's case, it led to his beheading. But it was out of love John was preaching it. It wasn't out of hatred. It's out of love. That they don't continue in the wrong. So that they can bask in God's acceptance and love and approval. And they can walk in God's truth and God's ways for their own benefit. God doesn't hate the pig. God loves us. He wants us to be healthy. God doesn't hate the homosexual. But he wants them to have true joy. Not a temporal joy. Not a carnal joy. God loves the selfish and the proud. But he wants to deliver us from those emotions and feelings and desires for our benefit because he loves us. That's true love for our benefit. That's why he came and died for our benefit out of love for us. John willingly sacrificed himself and we need to be willing to sacrifice in order to help others. Even if it costs us, we need to be willing to be used by God in helping people to better their lives and prepare them for heaven because the Lord is coming soon and we need to prepare the way. So that was out of Matthew 3 and then also in the book of John. Chapter 3, verse 26, it says, John's disciples came to John and said, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, talking about Yeshua, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. So they were jealous. And John answered, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent before him. That's the other phrase from Malachi chapter 3, prepare the way, before him. 
And so John might have been referring to that very phrase. He might have been referring to that very text. That I am not the Messiah, I'm just a messenger. I'm just here to prepare the way before him. For him, it's all about him. It's not about you, it's not about me. It's all about him. It's all about the Lord. And then in Luke chapter 7, verse 24, Yeshua, speaking of this, said, Yeshua began to speak to the multitude concerning John. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I say to you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. So he's referring to Malachi chapter 3. He's applying it to John as the messenger, and he's applying it to himself as the one who would come. And in Malachi, he's talking about the Lord coming. And so here again, Yeshua is referring to himself in divine sense, that he is the one that John came to prepare the way for, and the one that the messenger was to come to prepare the way for was to be God. And so God came in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. We don't believe in a man who became God, we believe in a God who became man. Major difference. And if God can come and walk with Abraham and, I, uh, and speak to Isaac and Jacob, and God can come and walk with Adam and Eve, God was able to come in the flesh, in the form of Yeshua, be our Savior and die for us. And so we have the fulfillment, three different verses, saying this, this prophecy about a messenger to come and prepare the way before him is fulfilled in the life of John. And it is. So again, we have prophecy being fulfilled powerfully, accurately. Now, two people could have set this up. They could have read Malachi chapter 3 and said, oh, look, it says here that uh, the Lord's going to come and, and a messenger's going to come first. Well, I'll tell you what, you be the Lord and I'll be the messenger and I'll prepare the way before you and then you can be the Lord and we'll get a whole gathering, we'll get a whole bunch of people together and we'll have a, a big following and we'll make lots of money and set up some kind of scam doing that. Uh, but if that was their purpose, it didn't work too good because both of them ended up dying, right? So, so I don't think anyone would try to take it that far. And John would eventually say, look, 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 I really wasn't, you know, uh, let me out of this prison. Uh, no, it was a fulfillment of the prophecy. God knew it, God saw it, God said it, and just as God said, so it took place. The Messiah came on the scene, John came preparing the way, before him. And so the prophecies are accurate, thus the promises are accurate as well. Now back to chapter 3, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, we're still in verse 1, the second part of verse 1 continues and says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So now it uses this phrase, messenger of the covenant. And it's the same exact word, in the root of it anyway, messenger, as when it was referring to the messenger who would prepare the way before him. So there'd be a messenger who would prepare the way for the messenger. And the translators of this version had the first messenger in lowercase, the second messenger in uppercase indicating that the second one would be the Lord. 
And how do we know that the second one is referring to the Lord? Because in context of the text, it says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come, even the messenger of the covenant. So the messenger of the covenant is the Lord whom you seek who will suddenly come to his temple. So we know that this messenger is the divine messenger, the Lord himself messenger. And Yeshua applied this to himself as he is saying he is divine. And behold, he is coming, thus says the Lord of hosts. So the Lord of hosts says the Lord is coming as a messenger. Now they could have used, again, the translators could have translated that as angel. Again, about half the times they take that Hebrew word and translate it as angel. And so it could be the angel of the covenant, like angel of the Lord, or like you say, archangel, well, that's in the Greek. Uh, but the same concept. Uh, but here they chose messenger of the Lord, which is easier for us to accept and is accurate as well. And so again, Yeshua did not, wasn't an angel. He was divine. The angel of the Lord when referring to God, uh, not as an angel. Although if he became a man, he certainly could become an angel too if he wanted, right? He could become uh, anything that would be necessary for his plan of salvation to work out. But he was not a created being. He's divine from all eternity. And so it says, behold, he is coming. And he did come. And so again, another fulfillment of the, the prophecy. The Lord did come to this earth. So this is a messianic prophecy. John would prepare the way, and then the messenger, the Lord of hosts, the messenger of the covenant. What is the covenant? He's the messenger of the covenant, so he's the giver of the covenant. He's the one who speaks forth the covenant. What is the covenant? Torah. Torah is the covenant, right, exactly. Exactly. And in particular, which part of the Torah, even maybe more so than other parts of the Torah, are the covenant? The Ten Commandments. That's why it's referred to as the Ark of the Covenant. And what's inside the Ark? The Ten Commandments. The rest of the Torah is outside the Ark of the Covenant, but the Ten Commandments are inside the Ark of the Covenant. Right? So they're God's promises to us. They're God's assurances to us that he is able to give us the ability that we don't need any other gods, that we don't need to worship any other gods, we don't need to use his name in vain, he'll provide for all our needs, we don't need to steal from anyone. He'll give us perfect love for our spouse. We won't need to commit adultery or any other sexual immorality. He's able to uh, give us love so that we won't uh, covet uh, any other one's stuff or, or take from them or murder them or, 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 or kill them or harm them. And he'll be able to give us rest and peace that we'll be able to enjoy the Sabbath. Those are his covenant, his promises to us of a happy life, of loving God and loving others. He is the messenger of the covenant. He didn't do away with it. And then call this, what he called evil one time, sin good, now call it good. No, he confirms the covenant. He came as the messenger of the covenant. So he spoke the covenant. He gave the covenant. He wrote the covenant on stone with his finger and thus maintains it. And he's coming and he came. Now, it could sound like the second coming, but here he came to the temple and so the temple was there when he, was, when he came, and he did come to the temple. Although there is a heavenly temple as well. And then in verse 2, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? 
For he is like a refiner's fire and like a launder's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Well, that sounds like second coming type of terminology. He'll come. Who can appear? Who can endure the day of his appearing? In Revelation, it says even the righteous will say, who can stand? Right? It's coming in his purity and righteousness and in the glory of the Father and all the heavenly angels with him. Who can stand his appearing? It'll be like a refiner's fire and a launder's soap. And while it has applications to the second coming, it's still in reference to the first coming. It's in here somewhere. Barbara, can you look for it in there? <laughs> All right, thanks, John. Um, because it says, the sons of Levi. He came to purify the sons of Levi. Now, when he comes the second time, he will purify the whole earth. But he came the first time, not in a purifying fire to destroy, but a purifying fire to spiritually cleanse and spiritually, I think it's in the first bush. <laughs> Might have to chop it down or something. There you go. Uh, spiritually deliver us. To purge us through the power of his conviction, through the power of the Holy Spirit. That convicts us, that burns in our heart, that brings guilt into us, that brings conviction upon us. So that we repent of the sins and are delivered from the sin. That he cleanses us again like the silver and the gold, cleansing off the dross, cleansing off the impurities so that it can shine forth in its purity. And that's what he wants to do in us. That's what he came to do, not to call evil good, but to burn off the evil, to remove the evil from us, to cleanse us from the evil, to deliver us from the evil. And he did come to do that. And that is what he did. Again, in as I quoted before, call his name Yeshua, for he will save the people from their sins. Behold the Lamb of God, as John prepared, prepared the way and preached. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How does he do that? By pouring his Holy Spirit upon us, bringing conviction that wrong is wrong. And then offering to take the sin away. As we confess it, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he comes upon us as a refiner, as a purifier. He wants to purify you. He came to purify us. To purify us from sin. Deliver us from sin. Deliver us from those carnal feelings, those evil feelings. Those evil emotions, those evil desires. And we're born with. That's fine. We're born with it. But it's not okay. It might be reality. It might just be that's what we're all born with evil propensities. But he came to refine it, to burn it away, to take it away, to purge it away. So that we can offer to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, which is holy and acceptable to God. We can surrender all to him. So yes, there's Applications to the second coming, but also to the first coming, where he came to deliver us spiritually. And he'll purge the earth, and we'll get into that in another chapter. Malachi will get into that in another chapter in another week on the second coming purging of the earth. But he came to purify us, if we allow him.
to do so. In verse 4, Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. And so was that fulfilled? As the offering of Judah and Jerusalem become pleasant to the Lord? What is the offering of Judah and Jerusalem in fulfillment of this prophecy? Yeshua himself became the pure offering. That he, again, the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world, he came as that pure offering, as in the days of old, as in the former years, as in from the beginning, when he clothed Adam and Eve with, with animal skins, representing his sacrifice in their behalf. As he covers us with his righteousness, removes the sin from us, and then transforms us into his righteousness. And so he is that pure offering. He is that pure sin offering that we can offer before the Lord, that we can come before the Lord, confessing our sins, accepting his death for that forgiveness and removal. In verse 5, I will come near to you for judgment. I will be swift against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien, because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Again, sounds like second coming, and certainly does apply to the second coming but also here in context of the first coming. He came near for judgment, to judge between the right and the wrong, between the wheat and the tares. Hey, they brought him a lady caught in adultery. He didn't just stop with, neither do I condemn thee, but go and sin no more. Hey, he was calling her lifestyle wrong. Go and change by my power. Do not continue. Young man came to him and said, I, what can I do to, be, to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Yeshua said, keep the commandments and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and follow me. He called for action. He called for judgment. And the man refused, went away sorrowful. Yeshua didn't go begging him, oh, no, 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 please, I need you. No, I love you, I love you, I just love you, accept you, come on in, it doesn't matter, you can continue. No, he judged Peter, he corrected Peter. Tried to correct Judas. He corrected John and James. He came for judgment. He called out the Pharisees, he called out the Sadducees. So he came in judgment, he came near for judgment, and swift judgment against the sorcerers. Again, spiritually, conviction. Eventually he'll come with a swift judgment, again, permanently, with, with fire and destroy them. Destroy the wicked, burn the wheat, and rather the tares. Against sorcerers, and we're seeing an upkick in that. More and more of an acceptance of that. Came in slow back in the 70s or whatever, it was like bewitch, we have friendly witches. And then more recently, sorcerers like uh, Harry Potter and other wickedness, and I'm sure more and more now, more and more acceptance. This concept of sorcery and mixing it in with religion, the religion of the Bible, Ouija boards and seances and crystal balls and crystals and palm readers and horoscopes and what a stupid thing, horoscopes. I can't believe it's still being promoted. 
Tell me two twins are going to have the exact same day. Events happen to them all throughout their lives. They read their horoscope and they were born on the same day, born at the same time. So they, they, their horoscope says that and that has to happen. Everyone born that month, everyone has the same thing happen to them every month? And how long does it take for us to figure out that's not real? And yet it's still being promoted. Revelation says they will be deceived by your sorceries. And the devil is still doing sorceries. People speaking to the dead are so-called familiar spirits, evil spirits. Yeah, beliefs in aliens and all other kinds of things. And against adulterers, and that again would refer to all sexual sins, some of them like we've already referred to, but all types of adultery. Sex before sin, which has become, again, commonplace, and it's still a sin against God, and sin in God's eyes. And against perjurers, liars. And it's amazing how many lies, the blatant lies that are taking place now. Again, in religious circles, lying about the, the Bible and the commandments and three-quarters of it being called old and done away with, outdated. Like, it was once evil is now good. And see how that chapter, chapter 2, verse 17 fits right with this chapter, with these verses. No, he will call those liars out. It's just love, love, love and forgiveness. It's kind of wishy-washy love that doesn't stand for anything. That's not real love. That's not real love. It's not a love that's better for worse. God sticks with us. God loves us with unconditional love, but not unconditional acceptance of sin. You can still love. And God will love for eternity those that are lost. He'll miss them. He'll long for them. His heart will ache for them, but he's not going to let them into heaven. Lie, we're being lied to by governments across the world. And government agencies, people that are hired to protect us, to stand by, whether the Constitution of the United States or whatever country, to protect their citizens, and they're lying to them. Agencies that are made to protect the people's health, lying to them. Agencies to protect them from internal and external enemies lying to us and spying on us and lying about spying on us. So-called free press lying to us withhold, withholding truth. Perjurers. God will hold them accountable. Government leaders all up and down the ranks lying to us openly and blatantly against those who exploit wage earners. We see that big time now. Billionaire corporations, billionaires running them things who weren't even in existence 20 years ago. Companies that weren't even in existence 20 years ago. These people were nothing 20 years ago. Now the richest people in the world in 20 years. Out of nothing, so-called. Where they get their backing from? Who they sell their souls to? Then they're exploiting their workers. In this country and in many parts of the world, 
basically using slave labor, if not slave labor, and suppressing, while at the same time professing, oh, let's raise the minimum wage, while allowing inflation to take away every little profit anyway. And raising minimum wage to force, raise just forces inflation anyway. Instead of them giving actual living wages and sharing their profits, I mean, who needs billionaire, billions of dollars? Who needs to be a billionaire? I mean, if someone, there's only so many hours in a week you can work, there's only so smart you can be, there's only so talented you can be, and nobody's worth billions. Compared to everybody else. And someone makes $10 an hour, $15 an hour, $20 an hour, and someone else working basically the same amount of hours, because he's the CEO, making hundreds of thousand dollars an hour? No one could throw a ball that good, or kick a ball that good, or run that fast, to be worth that much. Exploiting the people who are working, keeping people oppressed, and keeping them from working, Stealing from the Social Security, originally was supposed to just be voluntary, and then became mandatory. We were told it was going to be in a separate fund, and then they moved it into the general fund. It was never to be touched, just for the purpose it was given. And now it's being spent on anything and every, to, to everything. Originally wasn't taxed, and then it was taxed a little bit, a set amount on a set amount, and now it's taxed on a lot on a lot. Stealing, exploiting wage earners. And widows and orphans who also need and benefit from the Social Security. Or pensions. So companies just change names. Bankrupt and start another business. So they don't have to pay the pensions. Widows and orphans suffering under this abuse, of being given a chance for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Instead, just spoon-fed little morsels against those who turn away the alien. Now, obviously, he's not talking here about open borders, because that would be against what the rest of the Bible says. I know in the Bible does it tell Israel, open your door and let all the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Hittites and the, all these and the Canaanites in. And actually just the opposite. It says don't intermarry with them, these idol worshippers. But as we still should love them. And call like Ruth to become a believer and an Israelite and accept him. But until they do, they cast out the Canaanites and the Jebusites. I was talking basically about racism, true racism, where we hate people because of their skin or their nationality or their, their biological, whether they're male or female, or, or on their beliefs or their religion or who they are or their age. You shouldn't turn away somebody on those bases. Today we got reverse racism. Whether 
people hate themselves, or so-called. Of course, they love themselves, they just hate everybody else who's like them. <laughs> kind of like Hitler. Right? He supported the Aryan race, and he wasn't part of the Aryan race. <laughs> so eventually, they would have got to him. If his theory would have played out long enough, they would, they would have had to execute himself. We've got the same type of stupidity going on now. All diversion tactics. It's all just satanic. So he calls against that. But to love and to accept. Jew or Gentile or anybody who's willing to accept the Lord and walk in his ways. And to love everybody else with true love. Not a wishy-washy love that accepts wrong, but that love that's willing to die for them. A love that's willing to correct them so that they can go to heaven. A love that's willing to sacrifice self in their behalf. A love that's willing to give of our own time and our own resources to help them out. And not just on a temporary basis, but for eternity. That's the type of love Yeshua manifested. He came and gave himself for us. That's true love. Not a love that God loves us as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us as we are. He loves us enough to change us. And then verse 6, For I am the Lord, I do not change, therefore you're not consumed, O sons of Jacob. He doesn't change. Again, this ends the, 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 the whole topic it started with, calling evil good. Right? It was one time evil, and now you're saying, I think it's good? I know, I don't change, God's saying. I didn't change. I didn't one time say the pig was evil, and now the pig is good. And a pig is okay. It's the flesh. It's eating the flesh. It's no good, right? Pigs in and of themselves are okay. God loves the pig. Just tells us don't eat it. Same way you don't eat rocks and poison ivy, right? God loves rocks. <laughs> I don't know how he feels about poison ivy, but you know. So he doesn't change. He's consistent. And true love is consistent and balanced. What true love won't do itself won't encourage others to do. And true love won't condemn someone else, or we shouldn't condemn, but won't judge someone else while allowing ourselves to continue to do that same wrong or similar wrong. He doesn't change. He's consistent in his love. He was consistent to Lucifer. He loved Lucifer, but you can't stay here if you're going to be that way. He was consistent with Adam and Eve. I love you, but you can't stay here if you're going to be that way. And he's consistent throughout, and he's still consistent today. And so when preachers of the Bible say, well, the Old Testament said this, but the New Testament says this, that's wrong right there. The whole thing is wrong. Whatever they were saying, whatever they were planning on saying, whatever they were going to say is totally wrong. Because there is no but. God doesn't change. He didn't inspire all those books, 4,000 years of writing, and then but now he changed. No, there's no but. Paul does not agree, disagree with Moses. Yeshua did not disagree with the prophets that came before him. Or anyone who came before him. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. 
And so his gospel is an everlasting gospel. The same way that Adam and Eve were saved from their sin is the same way that you and I are saved from our sins. The same way. He didn't change it. The same way that Abraham was, the same way that Moses was, is the same way that we are. Through the blood of the Lamb, the forgiveness of sins, the sanctuary service, the Lamb's sacrifice to cleanse us for our sins, becoming the substitute, fulfilling what the Messiah came to do, and then the power of God to fill us and change us. It's the same gospel. It's the everlasting gospel. It's never changed. And God's laws haven't changed. They're the same, consistent, all throughout. His plan revealing to us. That's why they're written in stone. I don't even have that saying. You say something's not permanent. Oh, it's not written in stone. Well, that means if it was written in stone, it would be permanent. And God did write it in stone. Thus, it's permanent. And they're eternal. From the beginning, God doesn't change. He didn't want Adam and Eve to murder, and basically that's what Eve did in giving the, the and, and the snake did to Eve. He didn't want them to covet, and that's basically what Eve did and Adam did. He didn't want them to steal, and that's basically what Adam and Eve did. He didn't want them to have any other God before him, and that's basically what Adam and Eve did. A spiritual adultery of listening to Lucifer instead of listening to God, basically what they did. He doesn't change. He's consistent. What was evil is evil, but he instituted a way to be forgiven and then change so that we can live good, godly lives by his grace. He's the same. He does not change. So we have an eternal God, a balanced God, a loving God, a good God, a true God, a God who loves us with an everlasting love, who loved us from the beginning, loved us when he created us, continues to love us and will do everything he can to save us so that we can be in heaven with him. And so, the moment when we pray, if in the past you had the kind of thinking that God changed, that he changed his laws, that his laws changed, that he did away with some, replaced them with others, or modified, uh, and you want to be cleansed of that, see the consistency in God, and when we pray, ask God to give you his mind. If your life is up and down, changing all the time, and you want that consistent type of love, it's not based on emotions, it's not based on other people's acceptance of you, but that you're able to consistently love and have a balanced, consistent life, ask God to give you his Holy Spirit. If you once believed that God at once was evil is now good, and you're seeing the logic behind God not changing, that what was evil is still evil. And if there's evil in your life, if any area in your life, whether actions or thoughts or motives or desires, whether lies, perjury, whether adultery, whether from fornication or, or adultery or, or pornography, lust of the mind. Again, Yeshua elevated the law. He didn't do away with the law. He says, if you lust with your eyes, you've committed adultery already. He didn't, didn't come to do away with the law, but to establish the law, to fulfill it in his life, and to fulfill it in our lives. And so if you need cleansing from any of those areas in that list that we read, sorcery, if you have any sorcery from your past or present, participated in any type of witchcraft in any way, shape, or form, or any other kind of sorcery. Let God cleanse you, purge it out of you, deliver it from you. 
break Satan's hold, cut the root because he claims a, a foothold, an open door that might have been opened in our past, or maybe generational, maybe you had some parent or grandparent who was into that kind of stuff, and Satan's still claiming that area, a reason to harass you. Confess it, give it over to the Lord, back third and fourth generation, all the way back. Break Satan's hold, purge it out, cleanse it out. God to judge it and deliver you from it. Or any form of racism in your mind, hating those that are not like you, looking down on any that are not like you, hindering the alien or anyone else that's not like you. Or if you've been oppressing others, widows, orphans, anyone that's not as position that you're in, a wage earner or any type of other situation, surrender that to the Lord, receive his cleansing. Let the sins go before you to judgment instead of holding on to them and be judged when he comes again. Let him take it in his first coming. Let him take it upon himself and bury it in the tomb and deliver you from it. Or if you're willing to say to the Lord, fill me with your double portion of your spirit. I want to be like an Elijah. I want to be like a John. I want to be a messenger preparing the second coming of the messenger of the covenant. I want to be used by you in preparing the way corporately together as a congregation and as a people of God around the world, but also individually in my life. Lord, use me. Give me that kind of balanced love that lovingly calls out sin, willing to die in that person's place if necessary. Willing to love them so much, I pray for them and intercede for them. Look for opportunities to correct. Give me a godly life and godly living righteous life so that I can live as a good example and not be hypocritical in my testimony to them, my sharing with them. If you're willing to be God's messenger and prepare the way for there'll be martyrs among that group. John was a martyr. It's okay. If you're willing to be a martyr for the Lord, willing to be his messenger and prepare the way for his coming. And the moment when we pray, ask God to give you his spirit, remove any fear, fill you, cleanse you, fill you with overflowing so that his spirit shines forth in word and action indeed. So if any of those areas apply to you in a moment, when we pray, let God do his mighty, glorious work. Our Lord and our God, King of the universe, we praise your name and we thank you for John. Thank you for his willingness to be used by you and sacrifice himself in that way. Thank you for Malachi who prophesied it. Thank you that we have the fulfillment of that prophecy. Thank you that we have the assurance of your word, the accuracy of your word. Lord, live in us. Make us your messengers. Cleanse us through and through. Purge us. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us individually, personally, and corporately, and bring conviction to us. And cleanse us through your blood, through your sacrifice, and remove out of us everything that's not of heaven. And fill us with your Spirit. Fill us with your love. Fill us with your truth. Fill us with holy lives, righteous lives. Put your words into our lips to speak your truth. 
Give us courage to walk boldly and to speak boldly for you. In Yeshua's holy name, amen.